right, folks, how you doing? Welcome to Episode 7 of the What's on the Line podcast. My name is David Sikorsky. It's uh, been a busy time this summer, so I uh, hope folks are out there fishing. Um, I say busy in a different way. Yeah, it's fishing season. I've been fortunate enough to get out on the water quite a bit. And also, CCA's been busy on the, the management front. Um, if you're not aware, there's a bunch going on with uh, straight bass, rockfish right now. Um, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which is the coastwide body that oversees the management of striped bass and many other species, is uh, is deliberating on how to take action to lower fishing mortality on striped bass because the fisheries stock assessment told us earlier this year that the uh, the stock is overfished and overfishing is occurring. Those are some technical terms that we've talked about in the past at podcasts, and you can find on the ASMFC website. There's a bunch of resources that can walk you through some of that fisheries management jargon. Uh, what it means is uh, not enough fish were born, and we kept taking too many. So um, the scientists have decided, based on the plan, to lower fishing mortality by around 18% uh, coastwide. So each state will have to figure out how to enact those measures. Um, but right now, where we are in the process is a public document's been prepared. ASMFC staff will take care of uh, putting that document together per the direction of the board, that the direction the board gave them last week. And then um, they'll go out to public comment. So probably at some point in September, uh, Marylanders will be able to attend a public meeting and learn about the action and why and some of the details and provide public comment. All along the way, CCA is fully engaged with uh, DNR and ASMFC and other folks up and down the coast to talk about what we think is best for the fishery and, and try and get it back together in a, in a positive way to grow abundance, uh, which of course benefits us all as anglers. Um, and so that's underway. Keep an eye on it. Check out our website, ccamd.org. Uh, in our last newsletter last week, I put together a little bit of a breakdown of the addendum process and what's going on there. Um, so just keep an eye on that. Also, um, last week at, uh, at ASMFC, there was some conversation about how the, uh, the cobia, um, fishery is now managed by the States. And so I will admit that I'm not 100% on top of that process and where it stands right now. Um, but it ultimately was a shift from the South Atlantic, uh, council, which handles the federal, uh, fisheries management, um, to the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. We're seeing cobia populations move to the north uh, with more frequency in some cases. Um, and so, you know, they're out there. And I, I know if you pay attention to social media, at least in the circles that I'm connected to, you'll see a lot of folks out there pursuing them. Um, and I was fortunate enough last week to hop out on the water with uh, with Captain Tyler Nahn, and he is joining us this week to talk about Tidewater Charters and uh, all the time he spends on the water as a, as a full-time guide um, throughout the country. And, uh, you know, many years now, Tyler's spent a lot of time on the water and become an expert guide that uh, yeah, he writes in Tide Magazine. Um, he does a bunch of great su- uh, support CCA throughout the year, and it's just an all-around fun guy to, uh, to go fishing with. So I was fortunate enough to do that last week and catch some cobia. So, Tyler, thanks for joining us today. What's going on, man? Oh, just same old, same old. How are things down in, uh, what are you, lower eastern shore of Virginia right now, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, I get down here in uh, late spring, and then I stay through the early fall. But, uh, yeah, like you are saying, it's, uh, it's, it's, been a, it's been a good season. You know, we were lucky enough last week that we had some good conditions. We got on some fish. Um, it, it, there's, definitely, there's definitely a lot of uh, cobias and, and redfish in the system right now. There's, it, it seems like there's a, the same amount of fish as, as any year. Uh, you know, there's not, not nearly as many big fish, I feel, as there has been uh, in the last, you know, eight or ten seasons. But 
Uh, still plenty of fish out there to be caught, and uh, we've been getting some nice ones too. Definitely, uh, you know, a few 50-inch, 55-inch fish here and there. Um, but yeah, we, we've been fishing every day. Today, we got the day off. Uh, it's storming down here, and it uh, wouldn't be a good day on the water. No, no, you don't want to get out there with lightning bolts dropping down from the heavens. So that wouldn't be a good idea. No, especially standing up on that tower. So I mean, tell yeah. us about that. That so tie butter charters. You've been on the water a long time, and I'll tell you, it really does show when you you hop on board with you, and you know you can see that expertise come through. And it's a so it's you know for anglers that want to go out and try these kinds of fisheries, there's no better way than to hire a guide like Tyler. These guys are ambassadors for our sport, and um, they you know they get you out on the water to, to recreationally fish, and and you know it's such an important part of our of our community and our culture. So um, I'm an obsessed angler. It's kind of how I ended up here um, in this seat, sort of. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you're an obsessed angler. I know you know these fish inside and out, and have this experience on the water. So where did it start? Like where did Tyler, the fishing guide, where did that light bulb get turned on? Oh, I, well, I grew up in the Upper Bay, and uh, when I was little, the, 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 there wasn't an Upper Bay season yet, um, and uh, my grandfather and my dad were big crabbers, and then uh, when they lift, when they had the first spring season, the Upper Bay, I think it was 98 or 99, from that point on, you know, my, my dad's house to the Upper Bay was, you know, eight minutes, and we'd fish every evening, you know, and it was it was the most epic saltwater fishing I think I had ever or will ever experience those first couple of years after after they lift, lifted the closure. I mean, we were, you know, we didn't we didn't even have we didn't have a bottom machine. We had a skiff, and we would ride in three four foot of water, and we would spook acres of fish, go upwind of them, and absolutely tear them up. I mean, it was wild, man. I mean, just big giant breeders you know, 30, 40 pound fish. We caught lots and lots of fish over 50 pounds, um, you know, 51, two, three inch fish. Um, and we had that for a long time. And then, uh, I also spent my summers in ocean city and I got to do the offshore thing and, you know, mess with a bunch of ocean stuff. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. And then I started fishing, uh, in for a living in, uh, 2007 in the summertime, uh, I started going to Alaska and uh, a bunch of other stuff and uh, traveling and fishing uh, has been the only way I've made a living uh, since then. I started my my business as an LLC in 2009, but I really started fishing for a living in 2007 or so. Um, but you know, uh, the bay has been home. You know, I do go down to Florida and uh, you know Alaska. I went to Alaska for 11 11 seasons just for summertime and uh, you know part time here and there. I did a bunch of just September type fishing and, uh, but I always come back to the Bay, man. It's uh, a special place and the fishing's diverse. You know, we have enough things to do, um, that I've been able to stay here and, and adapt, you know, uh, like you were saying earlier with the overfishing of the striped bass, that's been, uh, it really has changed my lifestyle and you know what I've been doing. Um, you know, back in, you know, 2010, I was doing, you know, I do all light tackle stuff, um, always have. I never really did any bait trips for rockfish or trolling, um, not, none of that. It's all light tackle. And, uh, you know, 2010, you know, or when in, in the beginning, you know, I was doing 150-plus rockfish trips a, a year. It was, a, a, you know, hustling. And, uh, you know, had multiple boats running and, you know, getting after it. And now uh, I barely do any rock fishing. Just the, the fishery has changed and, you know, starting, uh, let's see, 
uh, it's been almost 10 years now that I've been, uh, you know, fishing lower in the Chesapeake Bay and there, you know, just, there's more species to fish for. And, you know, there's not much for rockfish down here, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it's really changed in the last 10 years. I like, like, uh, I've never seen anything like it really. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt there's been a decline in, in, in the rockfish and, um, anglers have been signaling that. And I know that, um, I've always heard that from you. You've always been a great person to reach out to in, in the work we do in, in CC on the regulatory side. you got to stay connected to the people on the water because science is important. What's on paper is important, but the connection to the industry and to the folks that are out there experiencing it every day is very important. And neither yeah. neither yeah. side tells the story completely, and you got to have that blend of, of all those pieces of the puzzle to understand it. So the when you really got started, you're talking like Susquehanna Flats fishery, you know, those yep, big, big yep. fish up there. Yep. Talk about that change in your lifetime and like what you what you saw maybe year to year from like the late you know two thousand seven two thousand eight and then into more recent times. Yeah, um, you know uh, from the start of it, you know when it's, when we first had the spring season, they, they did those mortality studies where they put a bunch of fish in pens and they caught someone treble hooks, they caught or, you know plugs with treble hooks, they caught someone live bait that was J hooks, they caught someone circle hooks and all that, and then they they decided that the mortality was, you know, insignificant and that they were going to open it up. And then it was the most ridiculous thing ever. I mean, just absolutely wailing on big fish. And it gave anglers an opportunity to catch giant fish in shallow water. And I mean, they were thick. Um, You know, you always hear the the stories about Montauk and all that and how great their fisheries were or was, or, you know, the same kind of deal. But this was, it was hard to beat, man. I mean, it was a whole new level. Um, and it was really good growing up. Um, you know, we fished it hard, man. I mean, five, six days a week. When it was good, we'd fish every day, sometimes in the mornings and in the evenings. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, it was really good and consistent, you know, until uh, we started having, and everybody, you know, you have some muddy water years, you know, here and there, but uh, that really didn't matter if the fish were there we would whack them in chocolate milk i mean it did that was you know irrelevant um but we really started having some off years you know toward i guess it'd be like 2000 post 2010 you know like 2012 i think was a real slow year where there was hardly any return and that's when you know that's the greatest bottleneck of the entire migration i mean every fish is wedged into a little area you know i mean it's not not all the fish don't spawn up there but there's i mean a big old chunk of them and uh you know to see that having a slow year you know you got to wonder what the rest of the you know what the rest of the fishery is doing if that's the most concentrated spot you know narrowest spot that they hit um you know if we're having a tough time everybody else has got to be having a tough time yeah um, well so in my experience on the flats i you know i've i've fished during some of the peak years and did have some amazing days but yeah. like like the average guy that's you know got a full time job and can get out there on his own whenever or maybe hop on with a guide, um, you only get to fish a couple of days in a, in a spring. So um, I know I learned about it online, and that the convers you know the ability for anglers to communicate online has totally totally changed our our world. Um, and there's no secrets anymore, it seems. Um, so I always saw it that kind of play out on the flats, but it wasn't always. I think some people sometimes give it a perception as like this major impact on the fish and i don't know the answer of, of what the true impact is on the fish uh, to have that kind of catch and release fishery but i know that that it's important that you mentioned those scientific studies and we talked about them with rudy uh, lukakovic in the first podcast we did 
um, that at least when you're going to open access to a fishery, um, an important part of the biomass too, those, those big breeders. Um, and they're not just females. You're getting some big males up there too, and some schoolies and it's a big mix, you know, but I always say it's, it's important to kind of paint that picture for people to understand that it's not just this, um, it's not a slaughter by any, uh, any, um, way, shape or form because it's not a harvest fishery. It's a, it's a catch and release fishery. And, and, and it was opened with science. It wasn't just open, um, because of strictly political pressure or anything like that. Um, they made sure they did it in a stepwise approach. And, you know, as the fisheries declined, there's, there's a, an interesting dynamic with recreational fishing. You know, the, the guides, the pros are very good. Um, they're out there on the water now to find the fish, but the average, average angler, may not be as um, effective or, or as efficient in, in their fishing. So I can look in the mirror and say, hey, I've had plenty of days on the flats where all I did was scratch my head and go, where are they? I, th- I thought they were here yesterday. But I've also had those amazing days. So it's not just an all-out amazing fishery that's always on, right? It's just like anywhere else. They're on, they're off. But yeah. The days yeah. that they're on, I mean, it's epic. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the the earlier, the closer you get to like 2000 or, you know, previous years, the the more consistent it was. It was, you know, out of a 45-day season, you know, you had lights out, you know, you had, you know, almost, you know, 40 days, say, you know, you had five off days or you had six bad days or, you know, you have different, you know, times of day where it's slack tide or whatever. But, I mean, you could still whoop on them, you know, pretty much daily. We would run you know, two five-hour trips a day, and for the most part, it, it, we were extremely successful, um, you know, in, in the beginning. And there was, you know, there was 10, you know, uh, eight or 10 light tackle guides, basically the entire light tackle guide community back then in the Chesapeake Bay was up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was by far the youngest one. The next, you know, the, the next uh, youngest guy was probably 48 years old, you know, and I was, uh, you know, 20 three or four at that time, 23, probably. Um, it's the young punk. and, uh, yeah, yeah. They, nobody even knew what was going on. It, I was, I had a 20 foot sea craft and I was, uh, you know, fishing every single day, but, uh, yes, awesome. I mean, but like you're saying though, I mean, there was definitely, there's, uh, inconsistencies up there, but it, in a lot of time, the more time you spent, the more you got it dialed. Um, and that definitely helped with, you know, just be out there every single day and then you'd pick up little nuances and, you know, know when to hold them and know when to run. Yep. 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 And the, uh, have you noticed, I, I, I remember with the river herring, uh, fishery there were, they before, so now river herring are in, in moratorium in, in Maryland and most of the Atlantic coast States, if not all, um, because their yep. population is so low. And so, um, and the vast majority of the harvest of river herring that still occurs is through the midwater trawl fleet. I was at a, a fishery council meeting yesterday where they were talking about river herring caps on the trawl fleet and how do you manage that? It's the mackerel and, mm-hmm. and butterfish fishery. And that's still not a problem. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Um, yep. but unfortunately, uh, local anglers don't have access to herring anymore. Um, herbs tackle. I know Mike Benjamin used to be a big supplier of fresh or live or, or frozen herring for people. And, and then when the, the rules change, of course, they had to get out of that business. And so that was a big piece of the bait fishery for anglers. But, of course, that's what the fish are chasing, too. So do you, have you noticed um, any correlation between herring numbers and, and the stripers? And maybe they're not on the flats as much because the herring aren't there? Or any kind of thoughts on how those two connect or the shad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, big time. It's just a, a super interesting topic. And uh, it's is, you know, what I'm going to say here is all observational. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you know, from seeing it day in, day out last, last couple of years. Actually, this past year uh, was the first year 
that I did not fish up there since the, you know, or charter up there since 2007 ish. But, uh, and that was because the previous year I had, I lost a whole bunch of days because it was so bad and I couldn't make a living anymore. I felt like I couldn't make a living up there and I couldn't, you know, recreate, uh, the things that people had seen fishing with me 10 years prior, it just wasn't non-existent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but like the, the last year that I fished up there two years ago, two springs ago, fishing every day, this net, and we would see huge giant pushes of herring come up on the flats and in the rivers. And there'd be, you can tell cause there's a million and a half cormorants on them diving up and down. They're all coming up, choking herring down. And before when you would see that, you would get on top of those. I mean, everybody thinks about chasing birds. You know, you're chasing gulls and gannets and all that kind of stuff. Well, the cormorants would give them away half the time. And, uh, I mean, this there was there was so much bait those last two or three years that I was fishing it, and there was no big fish on them, really. I mean, it was you, before you could throw, you know, spoons or poppers or whatever on the edges of the big balls of cormorants, and you would smoke them. Uh, but there was, we had the bait. There was just the absence of big fish, you know, and we would, you know, and we would have, you know, decent days here and there. And to the average guy, you know, you say a guy goes out uh, and fishes four days a year and he happens to hit four good days when they're biting, he could be under the impression that the fishery is great, has nothing to worry about, no big deal, keep on keeping on. But if you're out there day in, day out, you start your day in the dark and you end your day in the dark, um, and you, I mean, you see the long-term patterns, um, it was super scary. And uh, that's when I really, I pulled the plug on the spring and I stayed in Florida and did the, um, the you know, spring tarpon fishing until the, you know, the end of April. Um, that was, uh, that was a big deal though, seeing that much bait and all them creeks and all that. I mean, the creeks around my father's house that, you know, get pushed as a herring. And I mean, they were, they were plugged with them, you know, and there was just still nothing there to eat them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, just paying attention to the herring story a little bit, there's some rivers that they're coming back and some rivers that they're not. And of course, all that's just anecdotal experience. What you see when you're out there, which is what most of us, you know, have it. We can, we can look and see and, and make a judgment. So, no, it's great yeah. to hear from a guy that spent all that time and can kind of tell the story from start to finish, at least in, you know, from your early years into, you know, professionally to the point where you couldn't, you had to make this business decision to move off. And a lot of guides and, and folks that rely on, on our resources for a living have to do that. So the, uh, so as that fisheries petered out, you spoke about Florida. So when do you start in Florida? And are you, are you... Uh, I, I go down, uh, you know, I love, I love fall rock fishing. Uh, you know, the whole light tackle fall thing has always been, uh, you know, growing up, we kept a boat on the Sasspress, and uh, we never had to had to go below the bridge, you know, to catch big fish, um, you know, big fall fish, you know, 30-inch, low 30-inch fish or whatever. But, uh, you know, I love doing the fall thing anyway. And uh, so I fished, um, you know, the fall rockfish till about Thanksgiving. I used to stay a little later and, you know, move a little farther south. Um, but I just, I get cold now. I'm getting soft, I guess, in my old age, I think. But, uh <laughs> But, uh, so I go down about Thanksgiving and then, uh, do the whole, uh, you know, we do some inshore fishing down there, uh, but most of it's offshore blackfin tunas and sailfish and, uh, a lot of kingfish, a lot of live bait, light tackle type stuff. And then I stay, stay down there until about, uh, until about May 1st now. And then, uh, I weasel back up into the Chesapeake and start off with, uh, you know, my spring fishing for some redfish and stuff like that. And, 
you know, then continue the summer uh, with uh, cobias and, and redfish. And uh, what else happens after that? Then right up to the mid-bay and do a little fall rock fishing and back to Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, everything's changing. You know, it's uh, like you were saying earlier about the Internet. Um, it has absolutely changed the entire dynamics of fishing. Um, you know, nowadays there's so much information and, you know, so much I don't know. Just everything is on the internet. I mean, if you're, if you're, I mean, if you can read, you're going to get them. I mean, it's, uh, especially with social media, everybody wants to put everything out there and it's, it has changed a lot of things, man. I mean, people are on fish now really quick, really fast game on. And it makes conservation even more important nowadays because everybody is wailing on them. You know, before it took lots of time, lots of fuel, and energy to you know stay on top of fish and now i mean you can scroll through a uh, some kind of social media feed and i mean you can i can tell where people are catching fish by the color of the water most of the time man it's yep, uh yep. it's crazy people ought to be super careful because i mean it, it's everybody's fishery i love everybody catching fish it's awesome but man i mean it doesn't take much for uh to really put a hurting on something real quick yeah, it really doesn't. And there's still bad days. There's still good days. But you're right. That that, that learning curve has been shortened completely. And I, I've experienced oh, yeah. that. I'm a better angler because all the network around me and what I see, it's not time. Oh, on the, I, sure. I haven't had to earn it. It's time on the water the way that, you know, the way that everybody had to before this technology came along. And then you look yeah. at this, uh, you know, some of this fish finder technology, which is awesome. And it's amazing. But it does increase our efficiency. And um, it's one thing actually going back to the flats and angler efficiency so right now we're facing this reduction in um, in striped bass. Um, you know, we talked about the the non-consumptive catch and release fishery, which is Rudy's words. The scientist that did the study said, "Look, it's not a consumptive yep. pro- practice. You're less than one percent of the fish that are, that are caught um, are going to uh, face mortality because of because of the angling." So, yep. uh, you know, I was at a, a, a meeting the other night talking with some folks, and. Uh, Again, I preface this by saying I don't have the answers, and it's, it's up, up to us as a community to have a conversation and figure out what we want our regulations to look like, and hopefully DNR can can kind of work through a process to give us what we want for the vast majority and for the benefit of the fish and, and the anglers downstream. Um, but, you know, some folks always say, well, the flats fishery, oh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't catch those fish because they're pre-spawn or they're spawning or, they're, or, or this and that. And, um, but unfortunately what happens is it, on the management plan on paper – we account for angler effort and potential mortality that comes from that, the catch per unit effort, and all these things interact in a, in a crazy math equation that I don't quite understand, but understand the basics of it. And as the, yeah. as the biomass decreases and as young of year or year classes aren't as strong, there's less fish available to the angler. So by default, we're not going to be as successful. So almost that plays as a conservation measure. And don't get me wrong, we still need to have regulatory structure around this piece and, and be smart and be proactive. Um, but ultimately, you take a place like the Susquehanna Flats, you're proof positive that as the fish go away, so do the anglers. And so maybe it's a little bit of a kind of you know, circular type situation there, but um, it, it's almost gotten to the point now where even removing the Susquehanna Flats fishery doesn't really mean that much to the fish because they're not there. Um, yeah, it 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 it's it not not even it wouldn't even I, I mean from a not a you know scientific perspective, but it as far as what I'm going to say, but I mean it, there's no way that that would make an impact. I mean the fish don't come back there. They're not. I mean it's it's brutal right now. It's not like it would have any significance in the in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Um, you know com- compared to other seasons, 
you know, not saying that, you know, there isn't uh, a few fish that die catching release fishing. I mean, but it, they have a r- really higher percent chance of surviving if they're thrown back rather than thrown in a cooler. Of course, of course. And if yeah. anglers educate themselves and work towards being better, which, you know, groups like us and ang- guides like you are, are kind of the tip of the spear in trying to make sure anglers continue to improve our, our techniques and such. And But then again, getting using better gear and, and everything else can only go so far. You're right. A fish in the cooler is dead. A fish released has a likelihood of living. So it's yeah. all that balance there and trying to make it all work for our community as a whole. And, uh, you know, the other, did you, did you ever get into the, uh, I guess the fall and winter time, you know, bridge tunnel fishery during the peak of, of, I think straight bass biomass. I mean, I fished, oh, fished light yeah. lines and stuff. And so oh, look, yeah. we had that and now Virginia's closed down their trophy season, which admittedly is, is a, is a, is a positive move, right? They want to take proactive action. Go in the right direction. Go in the right direction. Yeah. But ultimately it's the same story as the flats. There aren't that many fish there. So it really didn't count for that much. And, um, but so, I mean, the, that imagine that, you know, just the economic, I, I think about the economic activity factor too. Like the upper Bay lost that economic shot in the early spring because the fishery contracted, the population went in decline and now the bridge tunnels lost that. Um, and you know, maybe cobia and some of those other species have brought it back. So, I mean, I guess that's what you're focused on now, right? In, in Cape Charles, the cobia and the drum. So it, speak to how that's grown and are we working towards, um, another kind of, uh, I don't know, are we our own worst enemy sometimes in some of these fisheries where we all pile on, we all share all the information and next thing you know, that one goes back down. Uh, my the podcast I did uh, actually I recorded it the night before we fished um, with CL Marshall and Bill Hall, episode six. We were talking about um, their experiences of being two guys that grew up on the Lower Eastern Shore and Eastern Shore of Virginia um, and avid anglers. And I learned something. Anancock used to be considered the uh, Cobia capital of the world. They had a sign out in town there, and uh, oh yeah, in the fifties and sixties. So let's talk Cobia because we could jump all over the place and we'll get back to some of these other topics, but. Tell me yeah. about Cobia. What's your what your experiences have been? What you're doing, and, and why folks should get down and fish with you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a it's a really fun, exciting fishery. Um, you know, and I, I I grew up fishing them in the ocean, and then you know later on, I I came down here in the bay because it was a little more consistent with weather. You know, I can't fish the ocean every day with a you know 25 foot center console. It just wasn't doable. Um, and we, my dad's best friend lived in Crisfield and we, we caught him at a Crisfield when I was a little kid and this and that, but, um, you know, with the absence of rockfish, everybody's focus has turned more toward these other species. And, you know, unlike rockfish, I mean, drum, there's a whole bunch of drum, you know, like, uh, they are a very prolific fish and everybody thinks or would assume or think that there's lots of cobias and this and that and, you know, they do grow fast. They're second fastest growing fish in the ocean. They're continually spawning when the water temps are over 70 degrees. On the new and full moon, you see balls of them that are doing their deal. Um, but, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, probably six or eight years ago, I saw one that was had a pink bucktail stuck in its back. And I was like, wow, that is wild. You know, I was like, man, I'm going to try to catch that thing. See if I get the bucktail back. Of course, you wouldn't bite. But I saw that fish probably for another 40 days in the same location that, I mean, he would, I just saw him every day. I mean, just every day I kept seeing the same fish, same fish, same fish, same fish. And that really got me thinking because 10 years ago, 
the, uh, we had the same amount of fish I felt like that we have right now, but they were much, much, much bigger average. Um, even though the limit was only 37 inches and you kill one per person, which seems like a lot and it is a lot. Nowadays, I feel like it would crumble the fishery. Um, but there was a lot less people doing it. Um, and then so the back to the fish with the bucktail on his back, that got me thinking. And then the last couple of years, the amount of big fish have kind of slowed down a little bit and we're still catching, still having fun. You know, drummer always had the drum have been thick, you know, and, uh, that kind of fills up the void for some of the, the bigger cobias that I'm not seeing. Um, but we started tagging them, um, a buddy of mine, client buddy of mine, who's been fishing me for since I started, uh, also noticed this when we got talking about it one day. And he started, from what I know, the only privately funded tagging program. And uh, we have tagged uh, probably, I don't know, in the last couple of years, probably three or 400 fish. And uh, the rate of recapture is astronomical you would it's hard to believe we've had some fish that have been caught four five six times and that's you know the same fish man um so yeah i I really really started to push you know the catch and release of cobias i got a bunch of my buddies on board too from the carolinas and uh you know i run two charter boats in the summertime our boats we only kill two fish um we try to never kill three unless we have a you know a fish that's Oddly enough, would be like gut hooks because we we use circle hooks 99% of the time um, when we're fishing live baits and artificials. It's artificials, but um, you know uh, it is it's still a great fishery. You know uh, I look forward to it every summer. You know uh, and uh, it's the, the drum have also filled this this void or or lack of the big cobias. Um, and you would think re- and we the cobia regulations too have been going up and down and all kinds of crazy things have been happening. Um, but the amount of boat traffic in the last four or five years, I would ha- at least doubled or probably more. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, real, realistically, it's absolutely wild. And it's everybody's enjoying themselves, enjoying the fishery. It's an economic engine. You know, um, it's, you know, everybody's having fun. But, um, you know, cobias and stuff like that, to, we really need to watch or it's going to end up, you know, something's going to happen like, like a straight bass fishery. I mean, yeah, everybody is. There's no more striped bass, really. To, I mean, there is, but there's the fishery is not nearly as prolific, or you know, anglers aren't as successful catching them. So they've shifted their focus to other species. And as far as inshore, you know, species, it's the biggest and one around besides the drum. And you can't you can't keep the big drum. That's why we got a bunch of them. Um, but uh, you know, catch and release, and you know, the preservation of this fishery is probably the utmost importance right now because everybody is hammering on these things yeah yeah and it's uh, we, we were talking about actually you know i don't know if you recall so last week when we were um fishing with you yeah i think we had nine fish uh two keepers um may have had a third that was over over the size but you know i thought that was pretty cool we get on the boat with you and it speaks to again how you're an ambassador of not only just taking people fishing and, and being positive about it um but also explaining to them hey yeah, we're out here to catch some fish, take some home and eat them. But you know what? My rule here on the boat is two fish, not three, uh, like the regs would allow. Um, and that's, yeah, you do leave that third fish available just in case, like you mentioned, there's some mortality and you just want to take it home and not waste it. Um, and that's great. But the lead that way, you know what it teaches people um, 
to understand what they're what they're they're about to experience, what they're about to see. And if you just go out and look at the cobia fishery, you can see them all over the place. They're a very visual type fishery. Um, you know, they're on yeah. the surface, um, but and it can give you that false kind of comfort that there's a lot around. But again, it's one more example of where many years of experience on the water is important. And I think the agencies are, as they shift to state management, it seems to me, I do need to start paying attention to it more, but it really does seem to me like they are making a stronger effort to better understand what the angler impact is, especially in Virginia, because it's such a, an important fishery for them um, in, in that time, you know, in the summertime, um, to better understand what anglers are doing. So there's actually even a, a permit and a record, reporting process for wreck anglers um, and, cap, and charter captains, correct? So folks, yep. tell them what yep. they catch, right? Yes. Yep. You're right. We've got a report. It's like an online reporting deal and they're trying to keep track of things. And they're definitely, the management is definitely going in the right uh, direction. And like a lot of, uh, like a lot of other fisheries, you know, everybody wants to be reactive instead of proactive. And I feel like Virginia has definitely taken some proactive steps, which is really nice to see uh, because it's a lot easier to try to hang on to the fish that you got than to try to rebuild a stock. You know, it's, uh, you know, that just takes time. I mean, cobias aren't as slow growing as striped bass. You know, a, a big one is, you know, eight or 10 years old when, you know, a big striped bass is 18 years old. You know, it's, uh, there's a big, there's a big time difference there, which, you know, which, uh, and everybody, the other thing about, about cobias too is, which is wild to me is that, you know, they are definitely, um, you know, you're seeing people catch them further north, you know, but those fish, uh, those fish were, were pretty much always there. It's just they were they were not known and, and they weren't on the internet. And people didn't see it, you know. And you know those little populations of fish that are on the edges, you know, those fish were probably spawning. Those were you know successful groups that weren't really getting picked on. And you know you got to think about that too in the back of your head. Now everybody is pursuing these fish, even on the extreme edges of the population. You know what what kind of impact is that having? And thanks. Uh, tiny baby Jesus that we got Kobe regulations passed in Maryland, because if not, um, you know, this summer, especially, you know, the tides have turned for them and they are, they're getting beat on pretty good, um, which is, you know, it's awesome. Anglers are catching other species, you know, high five in awesome time. Um, but, you know, you just gotta, we just gotta be careful what we do because, you know, anglers have a huge impact, you know, whether it's striped bass or cobia, you know, we're the vast numbers, you know, the, mm-hmm. the commercial fishery, you know, it's just a very few people, but they're catching a bunch of fish, you know, but with the angler, you know, the angler or the fishing population of people are gigantic, you know? Yeah. Um, and we're most successful. We book the most trips and we spend the most money when there's plenty of fish around there. So it's like this, you got it's almost self-defeatist in some ways, but, um, and I mean, that's not the right way to put it, but um, you got to be careful and that's it. And that's why management, while it might be daunting and frustrating sometimes, and it definitely is somewhat slow moving, depending on how you look at it, it is challenging sometimes. But on the bright side, I mean, if we're proactive, we can we can make some things, um, positive changes. And, and there are, yeah, Maryland put in regs, uh, what, for the second year now? Um, yep. So Cobia do have regulations. I always tell folks... Um, in fact, I get text messages from friends all the time. Hey, man, I just caught this uh, trigger fish. What's the limit? And I, you know, constantly tell people go to the the fish rules app. I'm pretty sure that's supported by NOAA or National Marine Fisheries. Yeah. And no matter what, it, it'll tell you what's legal where you are. Um, there's a federal water to state water component on on a lot of different fisheries if you're in the, out in the ocean. So always people keep an eye on that kind of stuff. And 
You know, those yep. regs those regs are in place for a purpose. So, but when we were fishing together last week, we had we had somebody was hooked up to one, a, a nice fish. I think we kept, and a smaller one came in, and I saw a, a what is it a pink tag? The tags that the program your your friend put together. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, well, they're uh, they're they're an orange, orange. tag, okay. and, uh, and it is. There's a couple of you know, VMRCs tagging them, and there's there's a couple other agencies that are that are tagging some fish here and there, and just the amount of tagged fish. Oh, but back to what you were saying, yeah, the one that came up on us that followed the other one, it was it was a tagged fish, and me and you were both looking at it. We we're like, oh my god. Yeah, we're like, wait, um, Tyler or somebody in that's how many people are, <laughs> are are deploying tags in the program you're participating in? Uh, there there's there's three there's three captains that are that are tagging them, and like I said earlier, I think we have about three hundred or so, maybe a little bit more tagged fish. Um, but with a rate of I've even caught it, this is where it gets even crazier. The first round of tags that we did, we tagged like a uh, hundred fish. And we did it in like uh, 12 days or so, or 13 days. And during that time frame, we were steady tagging them. Uh, we had recaptured like three of our tagged fish, you know, from like a previous couple days ago. Yeah. Um, you know, it's wild. And then we had a double off the bottom the other day, and both fish were tagged. Hmm. Now, is that you, wild? It's, it is wild. Now you wonder. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, how many? So, how many years have you been tagging now? Uh, three. Okay, so these fish have had a chance to leave and come back, and oh yeah, for sure. Are for you? Sure. Do you? Yeah. Do you? Have you personally picked up tags? Have you caught them a year or two years or three years later in a location that you tagged them in? Uh, well, I mean, within like a you know probably you know five or ten miles. I mean, not <laughs> like the exact spot or something. Right, I wouldn't. Right. And, yeah, but the. We've definitely the first year we tagged them. We've had like four or five kickbacks in the uh, this year, and then um, what was it the furthest one that we've had come back? We had one in February that was in West Palm, uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, which is kind of cool mm-hmm. uh, to see they're going that far. And then the um, uh, what was I going to say there? Just the whole tagging thing and the rate of recapture is. I mean, it's. It's cool to see what the fish are doing and track them, but it's also disturbing because we're such a small sample size. Right. I mean, at least at least I think I'm a small sample size. I mean, I'm, I hope I am. Right. Um, right. You know, but it's uh, it's a pretty wild deal. And the more fish we get tags in, and when all this data is compiled, it's going to be a, a very interesting deal uh, to, to see to see what what transpires. Yeah, absolutely. And the. Uh... I'm in the middle of conversations um, on behalf of CCA Maryland and talking with different partners at agencies and such to, to consider how to grow um, other tagging programs for other species and how anglers can be in, engaged in that. And there's there's challenges, and quite often there's certain there's a study component that has to come about in the beginning of one of these these um, to create a, a tagging program to understand what what questions am I trying to answer. How am I going to do it? Is this going to be statistically sound? So it's never the perfect answer to everything, and it, quite often it's just this anecdotal experience. But, it, you know, all these stories you've just related, they mean something, and, and we, should, uh, we should take notice of that kind of stuff, even if they're not exact and, and going to be plugged right into the management system. Because quite often, from what I understand and talking with some you know, highly talented folks that deal with this stuff, it is challenging sometimes to take – a like you could literally sit there and and talk yourself in a circle saying well the what ifs and the uh oh my i'm not sure well we can't answer this for sure and it it all kind of points back to the challenge of managing things with tails that we can't see that move all the time and 
Um, yeah. And then dealing with anecdotal experience versus science and everything else. I've got a quote on the uh, bottom of my whiteboard in my, my office. It says, science, dot, 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 better than a wild-ass guess. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, these uh, these tagging programs, um, I think they're important. And I look forward to some some hearing about more of that data and, and hopefully seeing it used in management. And um, and, and also having CCA get engaged in some of these, um, here in Maryland on, on other species. So that's some cool yeah. stuff. And, you know, I think these fish, we are sharing them no matter whether it's in the lower Chesapeake Bay or from Florida up and, you know, we got to figure out how to share them, uh, with, with an eye on the future. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all the, like, just like striped bass and all these other migratory species. I mean, this, the regulations from state to state and, you know, from commercial fish and recreational fish and everybody wants. Everybody wants to have access to this resource, and everybody wants a bunch of them, you know. And if we all, I mean, it's so hard, you know, with especially with commercial versus recreational stuff like that. It's so hard for everybody to kind of get along every now and then, you know. It's, but when we do, that's when we're going to be successful at management. You know, it's it's everybody's resource. Uh, we just got to all learn how to share it uh, for everybody's. You know, I don't know. Just benefit. everybody's happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everybody's benefit. Everybody, everybody needs to be happy. Everybody should be happy. It's a public resource. Yeah, yeah. Everybody should be happy. I mean, it's it's. I tell people all the time to take take. There's no doubt why people are frustrated and confused by a management system. Like I get it. I I'm sitting in these meetings sometimes and think, what the heck did they just say and why? And you know, it's, yeah. But you always got to take a step back and look at the bright side and consider that. You know, even compare yourself like this country to other parts of the world that don't have access to their resource or have depleted them. And we are very lucky. I always say that fishing and outdoor pursuits, hunting, fishing is like the epitome of freedom. Um, the fact that we can have a system where we all, this stuff belongs to all of us and somehow we share it. It's not perfect, but yep. guess what? We're, we, the users, are have been the, the loudest voices to... Uh, to support conservation into the future and you know, to have, again, to have guides like you to be that mouthpiece on the water with your clients is awesome. And it leads to a fun experience. I mean, we, well, we were la- launching out of Cape Charles, um, you know, a great little town on the Eastern shore of Virginia. And I was told last week by my, my friends, um, that, that, uh, the Eastern shore of Virginia has a, a one on and one off policy. So you might have to wait in line to get there, but if you book a trip with Tyler, um, what do your, when do your Cobia fishing, when's it typically start for you down there? Uh, I mean, the season opens June first, and that's when we, that's when we start, you know, picking on them. Um, you know, and June is a is a great month. We still, you know, the the redfish uh, they all just left the shallows, and you know, peelers leave. Redfish start to ball up at offshore, so or you know, in the deep. So you have a mixture of cobias and reds, and um, which you know makes for a fun day. And um, you know, this year uh, cobias were here. You kind of you know when the season opened, you know, by the by the tenth of June, you know, we were in full swing. And, uh, and, and right now it seems like the fish are starting to, uh, we've had some cool nights down here and the fish are starting to ball up a little bit. It seems like the, the transition to some, to some cooler late summer in the fall patterns have started. Um, but we'll keep, right now we're also like the seasons we're transitioning into, into a lot more redfish right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and which has been a lot of fun. I mean, we, uh, we got them last night with both boats fish last night and we got fish up to like 50, 55 pounds. It was a, it was a riot. That's um, awesome. Now, the, so yeah, the man. day I fished with you, I think you had a party. You have, you, so you're operating two boats right now out of Cape Charles, right? Yep. And, yep. Uh, and we is, are you generally focused on the drum in the afternoon, or was that just happen to be the case the day I was down there? No, I mean you know, the, as, as the uh, you know as the sun starts to, to starts to go down, I mean a lot of people know yeah, that the the you know, drum drum love to bite in low light conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Cl- 
cloudy days, I've had great uh, success. You know, uh, we we like to live bait them, and uh, you know, with circle hooks, and you know, the fish are always hooked. I mean, ninety nine percent of the time, hooking the corner of mouth, and uh, they love biting live baits. And uh, we we run like a like four hour trips in the evening, uh, like five to nine. And, uh, you know, we usually do that every, every evening that fishable, we were, we're fishing for them. It's a lot of fun. It's easy. We take a lot of, you know, kids out and stuff and, you know, they're catching the biggest fish of their life, like, you know, a big old giant 40 pound, 50 pound drum. Um, you know, the average fish is gigantic. You know, the average fish is 44, 45 inches. I mean, that's like the standard cookie cutter, you know, drum. I mean, you go to Louisiana or all these other places where, you know, they get lots of big red fish. Most of the time, they're not nearly as big as the ones. And I've been lucky enough to fish a lot of those places, but you know they're they're not as big as the fish we get here. They're, they are absolute jumbos. I was showing pictures off of uh, some sort of social media last night, um, hanging out with some guys from Louisiana, and I said, "Look, ours are bigger than yours." <laughs> Just you know, give, giving them a hard time, of course. Um, oh man, but that, that's uh, it's wild, man. They're big, giant ocean fish, and. Uh, yeah, they they are thick, man. The last uh, last six or seven years, we've been really focusing on them because uh, they're just a lot of fun. I mean, they're gigantic. They're freight trains. It's hard to stop them. I mean, you know, we use you know a little bit heavier setup because you know we want to get the fish in and release them as quick as possible. Um, and you also got to be careful. A lot of people when they start drum fishing, you know, you're sitting on the anchor, and uh, you know you got to be careful reviving them because they they're i mean they're fighting as hard as they can um so what we do is a lot of times we'll take like a bugger grip or some kind of fish lipping device and we'll hang them on like a little piece of rope with the lip uh you know with the thing in their lip and let them just sit there and catch their breath because mm-hmm. um, those those fish they fight as hard as they can and they need a minute sometimes and when some people release them and they're on the anchor and you're in a whole bunch of current and when, once you release that fish, if he's upside down, by the time you went and pulled the anchor and did all that shenanigans, you're not going to be able to get to that fish uh, before he's, you know, a mile away from you. And it's almost dark. It's just not a, it's not a good uh, deal. And when a, you know, they're a drummer old fish, just like striped bass. They live for a long time. Uh, we just want to be careful when we release them things uh, because they just need a minute to catch your breath. Exactly. Yeah. And it, yeah. that's definitely a right technique, you know, clipping them, a boga grip or another lip gripper of some sort in the mouth and letting them kind of free swim. And I, again, like figure eight motions are always good if you can do that, but that's because you want the fish pointed into the current, into the water, not pulling it yeah. back. You don't want to pull it backwards necessarily. Um, no, water, no. water needs to go forward or, you know, the, the direction it's intended, not backwards through the gills. So that's not helping them at yeah. all. And that's an important yeah. point. And I, I actually, uh, anchor fishing anytime, anytime I'm anchored up and fishing with bait, I've always tried to use an anchor ball, so you can quick release and rip, you know, throw the a float into the water that holds your anchor line in case something happens. You maybe chase down a big fish or have a tangle or anything like that. So I think that's an important yeah. thing to consider for folks uh, if you're going to be anchored up out there and catching these big fish. And are yeah, you, uh, big. Are, are you finding them uh, out in these big roaming schools during the day while cobia fishing as well? Like how often uh, are you seeing those? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll see them every 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 couple of days in the deep. Um, you know, they're on, you know, ledges and, and whatnot, but, uh, I mean, you can, you know, uh, you can, when you come across them, it's a sight. I mean, uh, they're, they're in big spawning aggregations, you know, there'd be 300 or 3000 of them sometimes. And, uh, 
when when it's right, man, it is phenomenal. I mean, we tease them with poppers and stuff like that, and they uh, they come chewing and running running toward the boat, man. They uh, they they love to bite. It's uh, they're one of my favorite sport fish because they don't they don't care. They just want to eat, 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 and uh, it's hard to stop them when they're focused on 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 biting. You ain't gonna you ain't gonna pull it from them. We'll take the hooks off the poppers sometimes because if you leave a hook on there, he's gonna get it, no yeah. matter how fast you think you're gonna crank it from him. He's gonna wolf that thing down. Yeah, a, a bull. Well, yeah. A bull is the perfect name for that animal. You know, the bull drum, the big bull drum. And I'll tell yeah. you, I never. First, when I first caught my first bulls, big ones, I was down in uh, probably the Noose River, um, down in North Carolina, and couldn't believe just they don't give up. I mean, like you said, they fight, 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 fight. So you got to revive them. But I mean, yeah. there's no give up, and that big old tail. Oh man, do they have some power? So yeah, that's what, and it that's a, that is a great. I mean. That is one of the most successful stories, you know, the redfish comeback. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, everybody, you know, they were almost, you know, netted to extinction. And now we got them things so thick, it's not even funny. And it's, uh, it's really good to see. It's, it's providing, you know, Maryland and Virginia, all you know, the Bay States, a great fishery. Um, you know, the, the, more, the more they come back, the more big fish we have, the more of them push into Maryland waters. Everybody gets a crack at them. And, uh, I mean, they're gigantic and I mean, it's, it's a catch and release fishery, you know, some may, you know, uh, it might be, you know, some mortality, but they all get released and they all get a chance to, to go procreate and, and be giant fish for the next person. You know, it's, uh, it's a, it's a really cool deal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So as the, uh, the fall moves on, you said that it's just starting to change a little bit here in the middle of August and, uh, What's going to happen next for you? You said you go down to Florida in Thanksgiving time typically, but the rockfish, I mean, the stripers are still around. Uh, do you think you're going to be booking some trips, or do you have open dates in, in that period? Uh, yeah, yeah we, have, we, we got a few open dates. Um, you know, we'll be fishing the, the mid-Chesapeake. You know, once, you know, we get some cooler nights in the mid-bay, and the fish start to ball up and stack up, and, uh, you know, the, the river fishing starts getting good. Uh, I spent a lot of, I spent all my time on the eastern shore. Um, but you know, some of the bigger rivers, they'll start fishing Eastern Bay, all that kind of stuff. Once that starts firing, you know, we really start fishing them hard. And then we follow them out to the main stem. You know, last year it was a big Western shore bite that we were sliding over there, um, you know, daily and fishing down. And, um, it was, you know, last fall was, was a good fall. You know, uh, the fish, you know, are the right now they're in their typical summer grounds, up there, you know, around the bridge and, uh, you know, they're getting worked. Um, but you know, every fall, you mean, no matter how they're resilient, it's amazing to me how resilient those fish are. I mean, for how many people are, are whooping on them, uh, every fall comes, they all, you know, push back in the rivers are all chasing bait. And, you know, you get those, those mid October footballs and, uh, you know, the jig bite is incredible. Um, the light tackle jig fishing, is it's world class. I mean, they're not giant fish, but when it's right, it is so much fun and such a high volume fishery that it's it's hard to stop. Uh, I it's I love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. We uh we call it Rocktober, and uh, yeah, that's right. Of course, we had the the Rocktober Cup fishing tournament, which up until this year has been a uh, a single day tournament up in Baltimore, um, and in about the third week of October. But for this year, we're just getting close to launching registration and all the information for people. Um, this year it's going to be an entire month of October, which is like a derby style fishery. So you're, we're going to use eye angler, 
Um, and folks will take a picture of the fish against the ruler, release it, um, and be able to compete. So they could book a trip with you. They could go out on their own, whatever. If you're going fishing in the month of October, October, um, you'll be able to, uh, to report your catch to us and, and compete for prizes. So it's, it's not just that single day that weather could mess up or your, your schedule or whatever. So we're excited yeah. for that. And we're, we're looking to probably have a, a kickoff tournament, um, based out of Baltimore on a single day on, on September 28th. That'll be out of uh, out of Weaver Marine. So we're, again, we're just finalizing those details there. But uh, looking forward to that, just to celebrate. Um, yeah, the fisheries in decline. We have to be reasonable. We have to support good regulations that are going to turn this thing around. I think that's key. Um, I've been watching a lot of people have conversations about oh, this many days, that many days, this limit, that limit, and uh, there are a lot of options included in the addendum that I mentioned uh, in the intro here, and it's posted on our website. Um, there's going to be a lot more information coming out, but anglers always have to realize that. Uh, Fishing in the regulatory structure is all about trade-offs, and we can't have our cake and eat it too necessarily. Um, I would personally say that, that we maybe did um, through some of the peak years, probably uh, didn't recognize that the, the spawning success was not there for the rockfish, and so we probably should have ratcheted back little by little. I've always said yeah. that's the best way to do it, and that way it's not major knee-jerk reactions or, or major reactions to folks like you running a business. You can make better plans because the season's not going to get it chopped by 20% or 25% or 18%. You know, it would be nice yeah. to see a management plan in the future just kind of slowly turn the turn it back a little bit and almost to the point where we don't really notice that much and, and the fish end up winning too. Um, but anyway, so the, the days on the water, the, the number of fish you can keep, and the size limit are really the tools that, that anglers have. Uh, we mentioned the, the Susquehanna Flats fishery, and there's definitely a conversation happening where certain catch and release um, components of the, of the Chesapeake Bay fishery, folks want to shut them down. But as we mentioned, talking about the flats, that might not mean a lot. Um, so, you know, anglers are, need to get involved in the conversation and pay attention to it. Um, I think from a CCA perspective, our focus is always going to be, are these regulations going to work more so than who wins and who loses from a but you know within our sector i mean i think all anglers should have equal and fair access to our to our resource and hopefully we can make sure dnr does the right thing to turn the fishery around and then we don't have to worry about each other and we're just going to benefit from the reap the benefits moving forward um there is still that conversation about uh commercial versus recreational there's some folks leadership in dnr saying that the they have an intention to leave commercial harmless in this situation um uh, there's a lot of reasons why that we won't get into on this this episode, but uh, you know we're, we're facing somewhere between an 18 and I think 26 or 27 percent reduction um, in harvest in Maryland, and not every day is equal. It's not always that simple, but uh, folks are definitely keeping an eye on that kind of stuff. Um, it would be on that higher edge, 26, 27 percent, if the recreational side of the fishery would have to hold the burden that the commercial fishery is not going to receive. Um, and again, we'll forget opinions and policy and all that kind of stuff for this moment, but that's what's coming. And of course, uh, we mentioned Virginia and their trophy season and them deciding to take action to close that down, but they do have a large mesh gillnet fishery that is just slaughtering, um, the big spawning rock fishes that come into the bay. Um, I'm sure they catch some, um, uh, resident fish, but it's mostly these, big migratory fish that have been getting whacked all summer <laughs> up off New England and yeah. coming down in here and getting ready. So I always tell anglers, um, you know, it's, it's, it's comforting sometimes when I go to meetings and talk to the folks and they're like, yeah, we should give up this, we should give up that. I'm like, you know, the fact that you're even offering something up to give up proves that you get it and you understand the sportsman's role in all this stuff. Um, 
it'd be nice to see um, folks do that on, on the commercial side sometimes. And again, not to create an us versus them, but that massive fishery happening in the, uh, in the bay, um, that's a ton of fish. I mean, you've, have you experienced that or seen that? Um, oh yeah, it's, 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 uh, and I'm, I'm a, when commercial fishing's done right, I'm a supporter of commercial fishing. Like you're saying all, you know, opinions aside and all that stuff. I mean, it's everybody's resource. You know, everybody, everybody doesn't have access to a boat and can go fishing and, and keep a fish for dinner. Um, I'm not trying to sound like some, you know, crazy or whatever, because yeah. when your harvest fishing is done right, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's, it's, well, heck, uh, I think, how, think, look at Alaska, right? I mean, you've experienced that. Yeah. Alaska is yeah, a perfect yeah, example of this massive commercial fishery. And maybe that, you know, I don't know all the details of salmon, but heck, it's, it's everywhere. Wild salmon's all over the place and, and everybody kind of yeah. wins. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. It, yeah. And, and if they can make it work, you know, we can make it work down here. They have a little, their, their data sets and their, you know, their information they have available is probably a little bit better than ours because all their fish return to rivers and they can get yeah. actual physical counts. Yep. And some little different nuances like that. But, um, you know, if, if everybody wants fish, we have to work together because, you know, fighting and all that shenanigans doesn't, isn't going to mean anything in the future when there's nothing left for either one of us. Got that right. Um, it's called the tragedy you know, of the commons. When you, you have yeah, to share something yeah. and you forget that the thing you're sharing is the most important, you end up fighting with each other until you got nothing left. I heard uh, one yeah. little thing on Alaska. I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard yesterday that, um, one of the guys we were talking about, you know, just all sorts of fishery stuff at dinner last night, and one of the guys said it's something like fifty-one percent of jobs are, are in some way related to fishing. In in, I don't know if it's the whole state or or part of it, but that's that's pretty cool to think of. Yeah, you know, it's it's it's. I mean, uh, the outdoors fishing and hunting in in Alaska is a huge economic engine. I mean, it's everybody is somehow involved in it, whether they're a pilot, whether they work in a cannery, whether they work on on the Persane boats, or they're or they're netting. I mean, there's a million different, you know, people involved in it. And, uh, I mean, the commercial fishing sector is a lot bigger up there and they're definitely feeding the, I mean, the world. I mean, there's the wild salmon, you know, fishery up there is massive, but still you know, most of the state has you know, been very successful in, in, in managing it. And, uh, they definitely, that's something to look forward to. They spend a lot of, or look forward to maybe us doing it in the future, because they spend a lot of time and energy uh, trying as hard as they can, and that's you know all we can do. I mean, the science isn't super precise, but I, I feel like as long as they're giving it all they can give it, you know, all the effort they can put in there, the outcome is going to be better for everybody. Absolutely, um, and, and that's why it's always worth that. We should always be willing to have the conversation about what is the best use of this public resource and how are we going to do it. Do we? Is it? You know, you got to sprinkle in economics. You have to sprinkle sprinkle in the, the social component, the cultural component, the historical component. All those pieces of the puzzle. That's why we call fisheries management making sausage. Um, sometimes you don't want to know what's in it, but let's hope we can come up with a, a final product that that's edible <laughs> or tastes good for everybody. Oh yeah. That so. is awesome. That was a great analogy. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, sometimes uh, it stinks, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, it's uh but as far as going back to, you know, our fisheries, yeah. you know, um yeah, definitely uh, CCA from from striped bass, you guys were spearheading this whole thing and uh I don't know, just taking a reduction. I you know, I feel like n- nobody is Nobody is against it anymore because everybody is now definitely seeing the impact, whether you're a big, you know, uh, big charter boat at a Chesapeake beach or you're, uh, or you're a, a gill netter or a pound netter or whatever. Everybody wants 
to have access to the resource. And if it's meaning that everybody has to sacrifice a little bit now for our future, uh, no matter what the species is, I feel like everybody's definitely on board. And that's been a big movement uh, in the last, you know, what, eight or 10 years. Before that, I can remember where it was all about just harvesting and, you know, all the, you see pictures of dead fish on the dock and all that other stuff. And uh, the last side note, little tangent I got is the whole dock shots and dead fish and putting that all over the internet, stuff like that. What are we, what picture are we painting for future anglers? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I really feel like, I mean, if you're going to, you know, uh, be a steward of a resource and you're going to be a charter captain or you're going to be an outdoor writer or some kind of influencer on social media and you got all these followers and three quarters of them are probably younger kids that are, uh, you know, up and coming in the sport, you know, promoting, you know, fish on the dock and that kind of stuff is, I don't think the right path that we should be taking um, you know, I, as a charter captain, I'm selling a fishing experience and having fun, not meat. I mean, if you want to sell meat, then you're just going to price yourself out of a trip because people can go to the grocery store and get, you know, 50 pounds of fresh mahi for the price of a charter. Yep. Um, you know, uh, and everybody's watching too, you know, and what you're putting on the internet and it just, it goes out there and it just stays out there forever and just gets bounced around. Um, and it definitely, I don't know, it means a lot to younger generations on what they're seeing. I mean, you go to like a stoplight and there's kids in the, in the back seat of a car. They're, you know, they're 13 years old. They're on their phone scrolling through something. Yep. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, it, you know, I, I guarantee it. Yeah. It's yeah. wild. It's not, and it's not that, you know, it's also all too often, everything seems so black and white. So one way or the other, and it's like, no, no, no. I mean, and I, I hear you loud and clear cause I relate to you hundred percent and I know exactly what you're saying. There's nothing wrong with celebrating what you catch, taking it home, eating it, and everything else. It's almost like this ethical thing where ethics are hard to nail down. I mean, we all kind of understand what it means, but it's important that we recognize that our way is not the only way, and we shouldn't be passing down these moral judgments of each other that, you know, when people are just using their public resource in a way that they see fit. But I definitely hear what you're saying with regard to uh, to being responsible in the way you present our use of that resource, because you never know who's watching and, and who you're trying to uh, convey you know, a better future too, in, in a good way. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like the guys who, who go out and, uh, you know, who go dolphin fishing and they keep what they can eat and, you know, maybe for their neighbors or their grandma, but, you know, they don't go out there and kill, you know, 120 dolphin and lay them on the front of the deck of the boat for you know some kind of spectacle. I mean, it's, it's definitely, there's a lot of people watching, I would say just, you know, being careful on, on what you present out there to the younger generations would be a very uh, important consideration Absolutely. Uh, that somebody should have. Absolutely. So you, you, there's two topics I want to touch on before we're almost wrapped up here. I'm going to let yep. you get, get back to a rainy day in Cape Charles. Um, and it, it relates to obviously a couple of things we were talking about, but just what we just finished talking about. And, you know, you want to talk about selling an experience. Tell us, about Florida, what can anglers experience if they book a trip with you? I've seen the tarpon, I've seen the blackfin tuna, I've seen pictures of snook and snapper and goliath grouper, and I don't know, maybe I'm getting it all wrong. Tell me what a Florida experience is going to look like from like Thanksgiving into when you're wrapped up there in May, the fishing techniques and whatnot that you're doing so folks know, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's time to like buy myself a Christmas present and, uh, and go fishing with Tyler in Florida because that's definitely on my wish list. 
Yeah. Um, so, I mean, growing up in Maryland and Virginia in the Bay, uh, you know, light tackle was always what I loved, you know, and then I had a little bit of offshore influence uh, with my dad, buddy had a big sport fish in Ocean City and I spent my summers there growing up. But uh, when I started going down to Florida um, when I was a kid and then I, the first winter that I lived down there was 2008. And, uh, you know, the, I loved light tackle, but I quickly realized that artificial lures, uh, especially offshore, they have their time and a place, but that's not the stable. So the, a lot of what I do down there is light tackle, live bait fishing. Even when we catch them on poppers and flies and jigs, I'm still using a lot of, a lot of live bait, a lot of chum. Um, and when chumming down there isn't chum blocks or ground up bunker, unless you're snapper fishing, it's a lot of, you know, uh, throwing freebies over top of structure. You know, you're pulling, you're creating situations that wouldn't ever happen unless you had, you know, unless you had a lot of live bait. Um, and uh, it's pretty wild. I mean, it does take a lot of little fish to make a big fish, but you're pulling fish to the boat. Say you're in 300 feet of water, the fish are 150 feet down mid-water column. You're bringing blackfin tunas right to the back of the boat, and it gives anglers, you know, using the same, almost the same rockfish tackle that we use, um, you know, catching, you know, 18 to 20 pound, you know, giant blackfin tunas that, I mean, if you've ever caught any tuna species, you know that they absolutely rage. And, uh, yeah. And then aside from the tuna fishing, which, uh, goes all winter into the spring, uh, we get sailfish and permit and tarpon, uh, in the late winter in the spring, even though we do catch, uh, baby tarpon up to like 50 pounds all winter long. Uh, we have, uh, I mean, the, the species diversity in the Keys um, is really something. Uh, almost all the people that come down to fish with me in the Keys are from Maryland and Virginia. And uh, just to see people experience the different fisheries, even throughout a single day, you know, if one species isn't biting, you can go fish for another species. And it is absolutely incredible. Um, you know, in the wintertime, you can get uh, in trouble a little bit here and there with cold fronts. But it's still, yeah, a cold front down there is a lot warmer than anything you're going to have in Maryland or Virginia in, in February. Yeah, it's still getting um, down to Florida. But it can throw off the fishing just a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, inshore especially, offshore not so much. You know, the especially the tuna fishing and the big kingfish and uh, those kind of, um, you know, near-shore pelagics. You know, a lot of times we're running, you know, seven, eight miles offshore and we're immediately in the tuna grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, is, is so fun. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. Um, I saw, I guess what you did a, po- a podcast with, uh, Sean the other day, didn't you? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So Sean and, and, and them M boys come down every year. Uh, you can ask them guys, I man, it's, it's a riot. You know, we get the tunas fired up and they love casting jigs at them and small poppers and stuff like that. And, uh, what else do we do? Uh, the, the bottom fishing, we do a lot of mutton fishing and, uh, and different snapper species. Um, but if, basically, if one thing isn't biting, you always got something to do. You know, if a cold front comes through, there's always some kind of fishing opportunity that, that, we, can, that we can go pursue, which is a, a really nice thing. You know, if you're in the mid-Chesapeake Bay and the rockfish aren't biting, uh, you're in a bit of a pickle. Um, but, you know, Florida it definitely has a really unique, uh, diverse fishery. And a lot of fun. And I've seen pictures of uh, some nighttime tarpon fishing. Is that something you throw out there as an option sometimes? Yeah, or? we do. We we do that a lot. Um, you know, during the whole winter, if the water temperatures are over seventy, we catch baby tarpon, ten to fifty pounds. Uh, we catch them 
frequently. I mean, they they will bite. They love to bite. Um, and then starting about mid-March, you start to get an influx of migratory fish, um, you know, the big adults. You know, the migrat- they're 80 to 150 pounders. Um, and then we get them thick starting the end of March. And then, uh, you know, through April, um, I come back about May 1st. But harvest season does extend uh, for sure into May. May is a great month, but I just got a lot going on up here during May. Um, but April, I mean, great time for sailfish. They're tailing. If the, if the Gulf Stream comes and smashes against the reef, you have really good tailing conditions for sailfish, and you sight fish sailfish. Um, you know, you can see 20, 30 sailfish on a good day, and uh, it is unreal. Those fish are electric. You're using spinning rods, man. It's it's wicked. I swear. Man, I, love well, and, I love it so and much. Sailing, sailing tailfish, are you getting little wolf packs of them and such, or is it? Yeah, yeah, you'll get, you know, you'll be sitting in the waves, be, you know, like real big waves, you know, six, eight footers. You'll be sitting in there, like nosed into them, taking your time, and you'll be in like just off the edge of the reef, and you'll see them, you know, coming down the line. You can see them from a long way out, too, because they're in some big waves, and, uh, you know, you'll, a lot of times you'll see twos and threes, maybe four. Um, you know, like I said, like a really good day, you know, you'll see 30 fish or something like that. And if you can hook, you know, eight or 10 sailfish, you know, sight fishing for them is wicked. Um, we do fly, we do fly the kite too, which is uh, a very visual, uh, fun thing to do. Um, you know, goggle eyes on kites and you got a bait suspended out there and he gets exploded on by a big tuna or a sailfish. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, in permit too, that time of year, we get lots of, you know, big schools of permit that are, uh, you know, again, like the redfish up here right now, they're in spawning aggregation. So it's not like you're going to see one or two of them, like on a flat, you're going to see groups of, you know, four hundred of them i mean big old balls of them yeah and and they love to bite in the deep holy smokes are they hungry totally different critter than when they're up on the flat huh yeah yeah you know the permit most of the time you know to catch a big giant permit on the flat is a really special cool thing but i mean it takes anglers you know a lot of time and a lot of effort and you know usually multiple multiple days um but you know when they're in the deep it's a different it's a different fishery for sure but I mean, it's no less special than me. I mean, you're still having the opportunity to catch, you know, permits sometimes that are 30 pounders, man. They're like big old half sheets of plywood out there. That's and, awesome. uh, yeah, if you've ever caught a permit, they rage. I mean, when you hook them, we use like a, like a, a rockfish setup, like a 6,000 Saragossa on a seven foot medium heavy St. Croix, 30 pound braid. And they will dump that spool so fast your head will spin, man. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah. I, so your boat, uh, the 26 Jones Brothers with a, with a tower, um, what are you powered by, a 300 Yamaha? Yeah, 300 Yamaha. It's, uh, that thing's got 3,400 hours on it, and uh, really it's barely skipped a beat, man. It's, uh, it's been a great motor for me, and uh, um, I have another Yamaha uh, 300 on uh, another boat that we run down here, and uh, both of them, I mean, I keep a little changed. And uh, that's about it, man. They uh, they're hard to stop running. They just they, they love to go. It's amazing. I'll tell you, I've I've got a, a, a 150 on my on my boat that I'll unfortunately be selling here shortly, just because I, I don't get a chance to use it. And that's the worst thing you can do to an outboard. I mean, the best thing you can do is keep running it and working on it, or you know, keeping right. keeping it running, keeping that fuel fresh. And yeah, those Yamahas are amazing technology that that help us anglers get out there. And Yamahas an extremely. Uh, a great a great company that that's also engaged in conservation across the country so it's it's great to to know that that's you got a gray motor on the back of your your Jones brothers and uh you know reliability is so important to to keeping us on top of the fish and keeping a guy like you um 
in, in your business and, and making sure you can keep clients on the water. So as, uh, yeah. as people are coming down to, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll post links to your website and all that information on, on the information section of this podcast. Um, um, but Tidewater Charters, um, again, I'll get, I'll get all that stuff. What is it? Tidewater Charters LLC.com or. No, it's, uh, that's my email. The, oh. uh, the website, uh, the website, twcharters.com. Gotcha. And, uh, and, uh, my, uh, email is tidewatercharters.llc at gmail.com. And yeah, let, give me a shout. We're, uh, we, uh, we fish in Virginia most of the year and then, uh, go down to the Keys for about five months and, uh, about a, right, you know, with the, with the, again, going jet back just for a moment to the rockfish, you know, mm-hmm. we pretty much only do, um, you know, the fall rock fishing, uh, you know, uh, anymore. Yeah. I look forward to the, you know, it coming back and, uh, in a couple of years, maybe I'll be back, uh, in the upper Bay in the springtime, you know, where I grew up. But, uh, you know, right now it's just not feasible for me, but when things start to get better and hopefully they do, I'll be, I'll be right back on them. Absolutely. And I, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to catch a cobia on the fly, and uh, we haven't talked about that at all, but that is an option for folks, too. Your diversified guide, you know how to throw a fly rod and, and rig people up on that. So if people are fly oh, anglers yeah. and want to catch any of these species, of course, it's always a, a different challenge, <laughs> you know, especially oh, if you're yeah. comparing a fly to live bait. But uh, the other day, uh, you, I just it was my turn on the on the rod. To, the next cobia, we, we came out, I got a shot, and uh, I said, Tyler, I'm grabbing a fly rod, and you teased it up and, uh, and we're able to make a, I made a halfway decent cast, I think on the third try and, um, the fish took it. So that's something that's, that's really cool that, that I got to enjoy and, you know, caught some on spinning rods too. And, um, so, you know, it, the, the diversity is there for the folks that are listening that are, that are looking for a good guide that's just, uh, has salt water in his veins, uh, from an early age. And uh, I guess one last piece, um, you know, so if people are fishing the mid bay that are from this area, from, you know, Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, Obviously, they can jump off and, and catch up with you on, a, on maybe a single day, meet you early in the morning, go fishing. Uh, those drum trips out at Cape Charles are fantastic. Uh, short, little short window of, of fishing, so that's great for the family if folks don't want to spend all day on the water. And uh, you know, a little longer drive from the Baltimore-Washington area um, to down to Cape Charles, but there's tons of great lodging opportunities down there. Um, what's it look like in Florida? What, where specifically are you in the Keys, and what kind of lodging opportunities do you normally point uh, your clients towards down there? Yeah, uh, so I'm I'm in the, the Big Pine area, um, and uh, I fish out of Summerlin actually, which is right adjacent to Big Pine. But there's a couple different resorts and VRBO houses and stuff like that. And then if people want to stay in like a uh, a bigger chain hotel and would want some nightlife too, I'm only 25 minutes from Marathon one way or 25 minutes from Key West the other way, which makes it convenient because uh, you know either of those places there's a lot more to do. Um, as far as, you know, nightlife goes where I'm at, it's kind of, you know, low key, but if you're into that, you know, and you want to stay out of the hustle and bustle, there's some, you know, very local, small little resorts. And, and like I said, like some vacation rentals, um, that people have access to. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I can pick you up right from the dock and, uh, whether it's, we're going into the Gulf or going into the, into the ocean, it's never really that far of a run every now and then if it's a really calm, sucked out day, we'll, uh, you know, we'll do some crazy stuff and go run out to some of the long distance stuff and have the opportunity to catch some different species. But for the most part, we kind of stay halfway local. And, uh, you know, I catch bait before the trip. Uh, so a lot of times in the Keys, you know, you don't have to wake up crazy early. We, I'll come get you at like, you know, 930 or 10 o'clock after I got to get done catching bait. And then we'll uh, we'll go get them. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a riot. You know, either, you know, I'm, I'm, we're fortunate enough to have access to these fisheries, like we said earlier, and uh, even though things have changed, times have changed, 
we've still got some great fishing out there and uh i look forward to every day on the water and uh in the last 10 years i've probably averaged 300 days or so a year and uh every day i get out there whether it's you know rough or calm i'm still excited to be there and uh i look forward to you know taking some 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 more trips more you guys out and showing you what's going on out there and uh it's a a special place that uh we're fortunate to have absolutely well thank you so much for taking the time today um it's it's the benefit of when it rains we get we get a chance to chat with tyler and share it with uh (laughs) share it with our listeners and uh if you can't tell the guys just ate up with it like i said and and, you know these are the kind of folks that um if you've never participated in any of these fisheries you got to give a guy like tyler a call and uh and hop on board with him and and uh, you'll see that it's contagious, the, the excitement and the uh, the fun and the skill that you get from spending so much time on the water. Uh, for me, for a guy that's a total fish nerd and pays attention to all the regulatory stuff um, quite a bit, um, it's it's refreshing to hear from guides that um, that promote the voluntary restraint type concept and, and have their clients better understand like that, that it is really an interaction on the water that, that is a big piece of the experience. Um, it's great to take home fish, but it's sometimes we, we need to be measured in our approach to that kind of stuff. And, um, that's not something available with every single, uh, for hire, for hire captain out there. So keep up the good work on that, on that front. And I look forward to, uh, to catching up with you again and learning more about the, some of the Cobia data and what's going on there. Um, you know, as time progresses and, and hearing about your, your time down in Florida. So we're definitely gonna have to get you back, back on the podcast here, uh, in the future. And, uh, but for now that's it. So thanks so much, Tyler. Yep. Thank, thank you, Davey. And, uh, th- I think TCA too, for uh, all the, all the good things you guys have done and, uh, means a lot to, to all of us, uh, anglers, charter guys, whatever, everybody, we're all, uh, we're all thankful for all your efforts and, uh, uh, appreciate it and, uh, keep me in the loop, buddy. Absolutely, man. We couldn't, uh, we couldn't do it without you. Like I said, in the beginning, Tyler's written in Tide, uh, you know, longtime supporter of CCA in, in, in many ways. And of course, uh, Quite often, you can find some of his trips at our banquets, which is something that he's reaching out of his own pocket to help out and support CCA. So, you know, it's all part of the, we're all part of the family. So it's it's uh, we wouldn't be CCA without volunteers and supporters like you and the uh, you know tons of volunteers we have across this country. And we're all we're all in it together. So let's make it better. So yep, thank you, Sounds sir. Good buddy. Have a good yep. one. Keep me posted. I'll talk to you. All right, bye bye. Hey man. Thanks for listening along to episode seven. It is August twenty second. We recorded that last Thursday, um, but you're going to get uh, get to hear it today. And um, just some updates since we recorded. Um, you heard me mention some um, some reductions and such. I said somewhere between eighteen and the twenty six twenty seven percent range. It looks more like um, an eighteen to twenty two percent reduction. Maybe what Maryland anglers are facing. Um, we're not sure exactly what those. Um, what the options will be, but the the state of Maryland is most likely putting together a conservation equivalency plan. Um, that's um, a concept that I introduced or explained um, in in a newsletter last week. Uh, that's on our website ccamd.org. You just scroll down into the, the section with some um, news articles there um, to better understand that concept. But ultimately, we're putting together a, a season length uh, number of fish in your bag and length of fish, and it could include a, a size limit um, and and some various things or a slot limit or some various tools that we use to, uh, to lower the, the impact on the fish. Um, and so you're going to see more about that. The ASMFC staff will work with Maryland DNR to present the information contained in addendum six on, uh, September 25th. There is a, uh, event page on Facebook there and we'll send it out in our newsletter as well, uh, to make sure you guys can, um, uh, have an opportunity to attend that meeting if you would like. So a little over a month from now, you'll you'll get the full suite of options from 
the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, and we don't know exactly when Maryland will publish the conservation equivalency plan just yet. Uh, rumors are swirling about the uh, uh, moving the trophy season start uh, back a little bit into May, um, potentially shrinking the season on the back end. Um, we don't know other details beyond that at this point with any certainty, um, but it's important that wreck anglers pay attention. There is a lot of conversation about only the wreck fishery taking uh, reductions. And so that's private recreational anglers and charters. And um, so that's a big deal. It's a reallocation of, uh, of harvest and, and the balance of between wreck and commercial. Um, of course, fishing matters to all sectors, um, but recreational fishing is a, is a major powerhouse economically. Um, and of course, there's an important connection for all of us to have access to our resource. We do have to do right by the fish, change our techniques and, and promote uh, regulations that actually benefit the fish, and that'll be a big focus of ours at, at CCA. Um, but it's important that we don't cause undue harm on the uh, on the economics and, and the, the the benefit to uh, to the charter industry and, and to all the businesses surrounding striped bass fishing. Um, I think there's a middle ground we can find here, and let's hope that uh, that everybody does their part, and not just recreational anglers have to carry the burden of the reduction that's that's uh, coming soon. So, thanks for listening along, and keep an eye out on our social media feeds and website. Uh, for some more information as this stuff continues. If you haven't already, sign up for our newsletter. Uh, there should be a link at the bottom of our website, ccamd.org. And I'd uh, love to have you join CCA by going to ccamd.org slash join. Thank you.